yes, yes, yes. Welcome to Mont Icon. In this episode, we interview nomadic artist Stanislava Pinchuk, aka Miso. Stanislava, welcome. So good to have you here. Thanks for having me. What have you been up to? I guess like everyone in lockdown, I've sort of been minding my own business and trying to sort of work through it. Um, But it's good. I think I've kind of come out on the other end with a really good focus and productivity. I feel like, yeah, really on the path. So now I'm trying to avoid the, um, the distractions. It's a bit of a demand to go from lockdown to and having no conversations interpersonally to come and talk to us. But it's also been a demand for us to suddenly develop these skills because, like everyone, I haven't seen anyone, so talking to people. And one thing I've noticed is, um, and I think you were saying this earlier, um, that the stimulant of conversations with actual people in the real world, like having had all of my stimulations like run by like kind of AI algorithms for so long, like it does actually affect your capacity to create so, like, can you just talk about that for a little bit? Because I, I think that's really interesting. Like, how did that? How did? You, how do you? Your, your, you feel as you're kind of coming out of this? Yeah, I think during lockdown, I think it was kind of two things combined in one. Uh, one which was really incredible sensory deprivation. You know, I live in a small city apartment, so I missed um, even like touching animals or having a bath or feeling something on my skin like rain or snow, I kind of really missed that. So I would go to the park and just when the cops weren't doing the rounds, I would just put my like bare feet on the grass in winter. So I think it was that, but it was also missing um, kind of happenstance. So I was missing just random kind of encounters or someone recalling something to you or making a tenuous connection or, you know, seeing something you didn't expect to see and feeling inspired. I kind of made me realise what a big part of the creative process those two things are. Mm, yeah, I, I, I really miss... And there's something that is definitely lost even when you have these bizarre Zoom drinks with friends. Like, there's just something I find terrifying about that. And I, perhaps it's my, um, yeah, complete narcissism because I just c- can't help think about how I look to them because I'm watching them and yeah it becomes this strange thing where I can't focus on the conversation at all and the and and like you said the the conversation doesn't meander into you know across a range of topics like when we're talking to people it definitely things bounce around and ideas just shuffle and turn yeah there's something about zoom conversation that are that are terrifying because it's yeah, just staring you in the face or something. Mm. Body language, like you've missed body language, like people telling you things with gestures and stuff that you just you can't read that th- stuff very well from a distance. And I don't want to see everyone at the same time. There's something about that too. Like maybe my mind's—it's not for my my way of thinking. I just need to look at one person in the eye and hear what they have to say. And then look at someone else, but when we're all just in these boxes uh, presented like a deck of cards, it's yeah, it's a bit terrifying. Yeah, I think I kind of retreated completely. I think uh, 
Yeah, I found Zoom such a strange phenomenon. And, you know, there was a two weeks where everyone wanted to have drinks or these sort of novelties on there. And I th- it seemed to get pretty thin pretty quickly. But um, I just kind of thought, okay, like if, you know, I, I work really, really hard. And I think at a certain point, I sometimes have to call the shots or take the, um, you know, the riches and the, of, and the benefits of what you've cultivated. And for me, that was no Zoom, just mm. no Zoom. You can call me, you know, if we need to talk, no Zoom. And it was so good. What do you think it is about <laughs> calling that's so much better than Zoom? Because we, 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 we had this chat too a number of, on a number of occasions where we said just fucking call, like let's stop this Zoom shit. What do you think it is about that? I think personally I'm actually quite introverted and quite private. So I think even that strange thing of dissecting interiors behind people and, sure. uh, you know, children coming into the frame and, you know, which is great because it proves that parenting's not a nine to five, you know, mm. break. It's not. Um, but there's just something I think that you just have this kind of the necessary information without it trying to replicate real life. Yeah, I, I like to pace like mm. when I'm talking like on the phone I like to 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 move around and sometimes I'll do tedious tasks that I would be really embarrassed if the person knew I was doing them like kind of surreptitiously tidying stuff but um when you're like I I mean I fidget a lot so sitting there in front of a, a thing and being observed and to think that like 30 40 years ago every sci-fi representation of the future had us like like in front of huge screens just loving the idea of like video calls and stuff and now that we're in that like it's it, yeah it's really disgusting and, well there's and something like the panopticon about it it's mm. like you don't know you're being watched but you're you assume that someone's constantly watching your every movement you know and they are they're mining the data yeah yeah know? for sure yeah yeah it's pretty pretty scary um i'm interested in your like well traveled and this it, would this be like the l- longest period of time in which you haven't been able to do that and if so like um can you can you talk a little bit about the effects of that like i'm i'm really curious about that cuz i i felt that longing and i travel like maybe once or twice a year but i'd like to hear a bit about that from you yeah big time i mean i think i was on the road at least once a week of you know at the most you know, every two weeks. Um, so I was a pretty frequent flyer and changer of continents, and that suits me really well. I'm not good with domesticity necessarily, and I'm not good with routine. I find that stuff very encumbering to me. Uh, so that that's really my happy place and really my, um, I think, the kind of the rhythm of life and curiosity in which I really shine. Um so quarantine, yeah, I think I hadn't been home for more than a week for about 10 years, you know. Whoa. So it was a really huge change, but I, and it's something that everybody asked about, but I have to say really honestly, I, I absolutely loved it. And I think I was a little bit burnt out and I think it came at a really incredible time for me personally. And like I said, I'm quite good at keeping my own company and curiosity and, um, keeping to myself so I think 
actually was this really phenomenal experience, you know, for all the sensory deprivation mm. and, uh, you know, difficulty and financially and being in the arts. I think I, you know, I was very curious about all the people who, you know, kind of wouldn't find time to reflect about the decade that is coming. You know, we're not ending a decade, we're beginning a decade. And for me, it was so much about knowing that this isn't the first, you know, can I say shit show on here? Oh, yeah, we can say whatever, <laughs> whatever you want. Uh, so, you know, knowing that it's not the first shit show that we'll encounter in this decade and thinking about, you know, especially for me with, you know, being Ukrainian, the shit shows of the last decade, um, I think it really made me think a lot about what I need and my place in life and what's working, what's not. And I think I made some pretty wild decisions I wouldn't have made otherwise just staying busy. So, mm. yeah, I was quite curious at all the people who kind of wouldn't take the time to reflect and kept busy with Zoom Pilates and baking, like, with some weird trauma levels. You know, everyone has their own <laughs> way of doing it. But uh, I really enjoyed the time to wrestle with the big questions. Where, where was the last place you visited and did the lockdown force you to reflect on that in a, in a different or unique way? Yeah, big time. I mean, I was living in Bosnia, uh, Herzegovina. I was living in Sarajevo last year and uh, luckily gave up the lease on that flat and came back to Australia for a project. And um, yeah, I mean, in a huge way. So I've kind of in lockdown, I've decided to relocate again and found a new place and kind of just did it all over Viber with no floor plans and, you know, banks. It's pretty, it's pretty funny. Um, but, you know, you've got to do something crazy every now and again. Um, so, yeah, I think it really gave me a lot of time to think clearly. What, what, what was it about the lockdown that made you or helped you decide to move there and buy an apartment there? Um, I mean, I fell in love with a Bosnian and then I fell in love with Bosnia. It's pretty easy. <laughs> uh, but I think for me more, uh, you know, I'm an artist. It's not the... Um, cash cow people think it is uh so i think it was more about i really looked around at my place which um is really great but it's it's kind of not big enough as a working studio and i kind of thinking about the next decade or especially for the next five years of things that i have lined up i think i just realized i just needed space like physical space and mental space to make and i think that's something i couldn't have here um so i think there's just a slightly different life and a slightly different freedom that I think I kind of need for the moment. What's your favourite memory from your trip with Ennis, who is definitely one of my favourite writers from the Melbourne scene? What What was your one of your favourite memories from, from that trip that, that, that really, yeah, made you feel like I could, I could fucking live here? Uh... I mean, I think too. The first one was I was starting to really panic about how much I was going into the country and back last year. And uh, I think on the last entry where, you know, I get in trouble at the passport booth, you know, on the reg. Uh, it's, you know, I'm very good at it by by this point. But um, I was getting a little bit nervous and the passport controller, you know, really flicked through all the pages of my passport and you know, really kind of looked at it, said something really quickly in Bosnian, and I, I kind of said, I'm so sorry, I'm uh, my Bosnian's a little bit shitty, can you say it slower or mm. English or Russian or French or, or something? He's like, you don't speak Bosnian? 
why not? And just stamps my passport and lets me in. And I was like, oh, this is it. This is, you know, uh, the countries where kindness is more important than rules, I think is something I've been thinking a lot about. Can you name other countries like that? I'd like to hear, I'd like to hear the list of this, the balance of kind, kind countries. Because um, we love rules here. <laughs> we fucking love rules here. Go through customs and you get a real wake-up call to how much we love rules here. <laughs> Um, it's not the UK, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not my best friends at Heathrow. Yeah. <laughs> For those that don't know, um, why why do you get in trouble at these at, at customs, and why do people raise their eyebrows at your passport? Um, I mean, I think the first ones that I travel a lot on my Ukrainian passport, which is not a great passport full stop to travel on and um, is, I, I think until quite recently was uh, you know impermissible to even visit other European countries without a visa um, so I think that's the first one I think the second one is um, I, I work in uh, kind of data mapping conflict zones and uh, war zones and sort of mapping how uh, kind of political events change the topography or how land kind of holds memory of a political event or evidence or testament. Um, so I think I've got a pretty colourful visa uh, situation and a lot of stamps um, that I think have got me on a few watch lists, to be honest, for a few countries I know. So, uh, yeah, it's something I've kind of gotten quite good at. Mm. Where, where, where did that come from that passion to trace the topography and how the earth of conflict zones shifts like what what prompted you to explore that because um i remember when i was young you were doing a lot of pay stops around the city um very different to to this or maybe not uh yeah i started making out um kind of doing graffiti and street art when i was a teenager um, and yeah, kind of really being in punk rock and that was sort of really my, the whole DIY world was very much my kind of creative education and orientation. And then, um, I'd sort of been making work for a while and it was, it was a lot about mapping, but it was very personal. It was sort of about, you know, living in Tokyo, going to my friend's houses, mapping, drinking and dancing. And it was very early 20s work about how much I love my friends and going out. And um, and then uh, Ukraine was invaded and I'd always known that there was a big part of me uh, that was very political and obviously punk rock and everything, um, that it wasn't in my work. So I knew it would get there one day and... I'm very, very sorry for the circumstances in which that happened. And so I think these two big things for me finally came together. And um, uh, so when Ukraine was invaded, I, it was a really big rupture, you know, I think. Where were you when you heard the, the news of that? I remember I was in a, in a car with some friends. And um, I mean, it was sort of, it was brewing for a while, you know. Um, but I, I, I really have a clear uh, memory of that time but um 
Yeah, I think I sort of really shut myself off for six months and I worked. I don't think I saw anyone. I don't think I went out for dinner with anyone. I I think my whole life was on fire, like every part of my life was on fire. It was kind of this really difficult, phenomenal time. And um, yeah, I think I just sort of stayed in my studio and mapped the whole thing. Was and, this something uh, that you were able to talk to people about at the time or was it were you, was it... Did you need to like be so insular about it and kind of alone with it? Like I'm yeah. very interested in how that conversation would have would have turned out. Yeah, I think outside of speaking to other Ukrainians, you know, I'm from the east, so it's really the, um, you know, I'm from the border, so it was something we never expected would happen. You know, there's this attitude when you're from a sort of you know developing nation, or you know, you're from a country with a little more turmoil that there's an expectation that these things happen you know and I think for you know in all my experience now I think nobody ever thinks it'll happen you know it's never something people are really reconciled with and I that was so true for me the big rupture of of what happened and especially being a you know a border person and you know the rule of thumb for border people is you're not from the border, the border crossed you, right? You know, you're Mm. usually bilingual, bicultural, you know, you live kind of at ease and suddenly some kind of conflict is created on your behalf, you know, by the powers that be. You know, it's the story for a lot of Ukrainians, you know, throughout history. Um, So what was I talking about? (laughs) Tell me about then that, you know, are you processing that? And then you go to Ukraine. What was that like when you land in Ukraine? I don't know. I mean, I think as you expect, you know, absolutely as you expect. Um, So I think, uh, I guess that's what I was saying. So this is sort of what started the work and the interest in um, kind of mapping the topographic sort of, Evidence and remnants and um, shapes that are that are created by what's going on, and you know this idea of evidence, and you know we're so much in the era of fake news, and you know all this kind of uh, misinformation, especially what happened in Ukraine with uh, the control of media and um, you know taking over the airwaves and things like that in certain parts of the country on the border. So it really made me think about ideas of evidence and what's um, kind of unarguable you know and I think how you know how for example how can you argue what happened in Auschwitz when you see the ruins you know Uh, so it really made me think a lot about ideas of evidence and I think that's where kind of the practice built on from because I didn't really see people you know whether academically or in the art world or uh, as architects or anything kind of working quite in that field and um, yeah so I think that's where the practice really originated and it kind of kept echoing in these sort of autobiographical layers out from there. Is this something that you're pursuing with your next piece of work? Like, is this an ongoing concern? Because I imagine it would become, as a theme, like more and more active. There's no shortage of war for you to <laughs> map. And there's also no shortage of, like, misinformation or... or, mm. or yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, your work... And um, the work of forensic architecture, for example, is to me some of the most important in the in the 
not that theirs is art strip like um, proper, but I think it's really reimagining journalism, like as a as an idea. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, their work is so incredible. It's it's so inspiring, and the way they can work as a team and kind of brace these worlds, it, it's so mind-blowing to me. Yeah. What are some of the other countries that you've visited? Uh, I know you've done a, a work with, um, was it the ruins of Mosul? Um, or uh, Yeah, there was a kind of collaboration I did with a really interesting team, um, which is sort of my first collaborative work, um, which was mapping the um, the oil fires set by That's ISIS right. south of Mosul, so in the al Qaraya basement, uh, basin by the river. Um, so it was about mapping the air particles that were coming out of the oil fires over pretty much the span of the fires and then measuring the particle weight as it moved um, because obviously particles have different weights. Uh, and so depending on the wind flow, they settle in different places and different components. So it was uh, kind of extrapolating um, all the elements from the air. It was really interesting for me to work with people who don't work with land but work with air. So mm. It's this kind of completely mm. different geospatial um, kind of terrain that I, that I work to and it's so much more abstract than me working as a kind of um, surveyor on the ground by myself, you know. Um, so it was a really, really incredible way to um, kind of orient thinking as well for me. And are you, um, have you already kind of plotted, because you've made a lot of decisions for the future, obviously, um, have you already plotted like what you're going to be working on when you, get, when you hit the ground mm. in how August? You, yeah, how do you decide? Like how, how, how does that happen? Or is it just something that yeah, enrages you or uh, inspires you? Yeah, I think enrages is probably the right word to begin with. You mm-hmm. know, I think rage and anger are really, really interesting emotions. Um, and I think they're a kind of really interest, interesting catalyst uh, to kind of sublimate into something else. Um, but I think, strangely, everything that I've worked on has been kind of quite autobiographical, and I think that's really important. Um you know, for better or for worse. So I, uh, after the first works in Ukraine, I worked in uh, Fukushima and Chernobyl. Mm. I was in uh, living in Japan, and um, I think when Fukushima happened, I was very surprised that I knew what to do. And I think because I was born right after Chernobyl in Ukraine, and, um, you know, a lot of people in my f- uh, apartment block on my level where I grew up were cleaners, and it was really s- funny how I was so prepared and all these sort of other young politically active people around me I was surprised they didn't quite know what to do and I I think it made me think a lot about kind of Chernobyl's long shadow Mm. Um, and especially on my generation of Ukrainians who you know I was born uh, in the Soviet Union and you know um, but we're so formed by the collapse Um, and so it was interesting going to Chernobyl, and that's the really interesting one about when you get there. There's nothing was a surprise. It's like really? going to New York for the first time. You know, you've seen it on every film, every mm-hmm. sitcom, you know, and it takes you about three days to realize you're in a new place. And that was Chernobyl. You know, the sort of psychogeographic map was totally there. Um, but I think that's what it 
it's like for, you know, Ukrainians. I think we were so shaped by this event in such a major way. It's, it's quite, it must be dangerous visiting a place like Chernobyl, right? I mean, how do you, do you have to wear special gear or something? Like, um, No, neither for Fukushima or Chernobyl. It's um, something that I had to do. Um, but I think you've just got to be really, really careful about con- uh, cross-contamination and um, uh, where you go, what you touch, what you wear, how you do it, you know, what you take back into the car, things like that. Um, drinking iodine afterwards. And it's it's sort of more um, about your long-term micro-civet um, exposure than your short-term Mm. Uh, unless you're somewhere with a very, very high concentration. So it's kind of just about managing that as you do the field work. I always, um, when I picture it, I always think about um, the zone. Like when I picture it. Like the stalker yeah, film? Yeah. Mm. Um, and, but I'm, I'm fascinated to hear about the animals. Did you see any animals there? Because I heard that the, the wildlife there has this like um, really kind of um, arresting kind of effect on people. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot to say about that. Uh, I think one of the big things that people say is um, th- that I meet, it's sort of like, oh, but it's, you know, it's regenerating, it's, uh, you know, regrowing. I mean, it's poison, you know, and the nature is poison and that's the really hard talk of, you know, what's happened out there and um, some animals feel it more, some animals feel sure, it less. Sure. Um, and there are so many really, really interesting projects and biologists who are working out there and working with mushrooms, working with wolves. Um, but you see a lot of wild horses who have cataracts. Um, for me, I worked with beekeepers. Uh, so I'm a beekeeper um, and I'm from two sides of the family who are beekeepers. And it's not so special. It's Ukrainians. We found it very <laughs> special and we definitely were planning on digging into your beekeeping stories. Um, but the the really beautiful thing about Chernobyl is um, uh, there's a lot of oral history that the first people who knew that anything happened, because obviously people weren't told for the first 36 hours that something had happened and the phone lines were cut, were the beekeepers. So it was quite a warm day, but uh, all the bees went inside their hives and didn't come out for a few days. Wow. And all the worms went really far under the soil. And so those were the only people who thought something was wrong um and that so so that was kind of the genesis of my work there um and the data mapping and the land measurement was really tied to bees um so there is a really really interesting kind of way of looking through the zone through biology that i think is probably the most important way to look at it Mm -hmm. well what kind of conversations or um memories or lessons did they impart on you, the beekeepers of Chernobyl? Oh, it's the beekeepers of anywhere. Right. The best thing about beekeeping, and, and you know, you're really talking about subculture here, it's um, there's like this friendship of beekeepers. There's nothing, I don't know if there are other things like it, um, but there's just such a curiosity about how you do it, what your bees are like, because it's so much about the, like, the nuances of your place and mm-hmm. your seasons and you know, every season's different. And so, you know, there's no really school for it. You just learn by talking and doing. So beekeepers have this really amazing kind of um, charity and kind of pool wherever you go and this real understanding of, like, the care of what you do. So, oh, man, you just 
find the beekeepers anywhere and like talk shop and you're you're in you know i'm interested to hear about your (laughs) your apprenticeship into this world because um yeah was it handed down in the family um did you have like because because greta had um was is a beekeeper as well and had like a, a figure like like almost like a master that would like induct her and like explain the, the kind of process and stuff and 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 they, they're still very close you know so mm. i'm interested to hear like about that kind of like almost like master apprentice kind of relationship did, did you have that or was it because it's in your family was it immediate to you or, or almost like intrinsic uh yeah actually, i mean the nice link is that uh my great-grandfather who was um a very very good beekeeper with many hives uh he was a kind of well-known resistance leader. So he was in Poltava region. He was organizing all the resistance against the Nazis every night. And I think uh, sort of a, a couple of nights where he was the only man who survived and he always regrouped and uh, always kept going and survived the war. They had a really big bounty on his head. So I think there's this kind of like, you know, bolshy beekeeping that I've really kind of inherited. <laughs> but um Actually, it's uh, it started here. So when I was working in Chernobyl, I emailed um, a beekeeper who I'd kind of been keeping tabs on, who's become now one of my really, really good friends, and just said, hey, do you know anything about this, you know, bees detecting radioactivity thing? I can find um, that they, I can find all these papers that they detect electromagnetic waves, but I can't really find anything on radioactivity. What, what do you know? And we we sort of started trading notes and uh, when I came back to Australia, we sort of started beekeeping together. and So that, that that's kind of how I came into it. So it was a little bit later in life. I grew up in, like, Soviet flats. You know, we didn't have beekeeping. It sort of skipped a generation. <laughs> and do you work with native bees or um, European bees? I've got uh, European bees here. Na- native bees tend to be solitary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what, what do you like about beekeeping like what is it that because there's something deeply spiritual and philosophical about it from from mind what what was it that you really enjoyed and and when you were in the motions of it thought this is so much deeper than honey completely i mean we're really not going to survive without them are we you know it's such a um it's such a kind of primordial human thing to do you know when we walked out of africa we walked out with bees you know we carried them with us and they've been kind of the basis of our sedentary agriculture since then you know and um yeah we really don't we've really got about four years without them you know so i think there's that but i think it's also such an incredible way to kind of deal with the super organism you know as a human because we don't really think of ourselves in that way and we don't think of our society in that way and there's something so beautiful about seeing how a beehive works and being able to tend to it and to care for it and um yeah i mean i think there's no there's no surprise why it's so tied to religion basically in every culture under the sun you know Mm. of what bees mean to us i I think it's so sublime to be a part of that How's your beekeeping journey going? I think you should it's, talk a it's little only bit. Just, it's only just begun. I think we're going to need you to come over, Stanislava, and give us a few tips because, um, uh, yeah, my partner's collecting her first uh, hive and um, we spent last weekend putting together all the... Um, uh, frames. Yeah, all the frames and that. So 
This is the start of something quite special. This is is the beginning of my Honeyland journey. Back back to the roots of civilization. Welcome to the friendship, the handshake of beekeepers. Tell tell me. You're in, you're in. (laughs) Thank you. I'm hoping you'll come around and and show us the ropes. But (laughs) um, like we were talking about punk scenes around the world, tell me about the different bee subcultures around the world because I know you've done a bit of traveling and I want to know the, the inside scoop on some of the different quirks of beekeeping around the world. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's so different because everyone lives under such different winters, such different seasonal conditions, and also with, you know, the climate emergency that we're facing and um, especially, you know, the Asian hornets as well as, and um, uh, varroa destructor mite and all these things that kind of beekeepers around the world are facing. It's... Um, There's kind of as much as there are subcultures, there are always so these really big commonalities, you know. Mm. Um, but I was really lucky. I, I with with Nick, my friend, who I just mentioned before, we um, and some beekeepers we know from Paris. We uh, we drove through Morocco down the Honey Highway, chasing honey in the Sahara, and it it was so beautiful to um, kind of meet meet beekeepers just by word of mouth and someone gives you a phone number and you know people are so proud of their hives and as soon as you have honey from your hive from the other side of the world you're in you know <laughs> and i think there's such a beautiful generosity out there as well you know stay for 3 days see my hives taste this you know have a jar of this and you know so much curiosity about how you do it what your problems are and um and so many different ways of beekeeping, you know, like U- Ukrainians, um, we we used to keep them in um, really beautiful thatches, like uh, straw thatches. Um, and then, for example, in the Sahara, it's these really beautiful logs that are kind of clogged with mud. Mm. And families would come and put them in this very specific um, site in, in, the, in, in a mountain which is the one I was speaking about, the world's oldest apiary, and um, kind of tend to them after the season and kind of round back up and collect their honey. Um, and then there are, you know, beekeepers who keep it in logs and keep it, you know, up in trees really far above bears. And, um, you know, and especially up north in, you know, this country, how people kind of live with sugar bag and, you know, tap out the sound and... Um, crack the tree you know it's there's there's a million ways to do it it's so beautiful are there any pirates that steal other people's bees like they have to get to gangsters and crime at some point there has to be some are there any bandits (laughs) 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 yeah is it just bears or are there any like um people in i'm sure there are in, in communities I, I just remember seeing that film in that Honeyland, and the woman yeah. gets her bees stolen by that uh turkish man from the city and it just i felt gutted for her mm. because she'd been cultivating this hive for so long are there all these tragic stories that you've heard i'm sure you've heard many yeah i mean um i don't know how you feel about more white collar crime if that if that floats your boat but um there are a lot of beekeepers who don't keep for the honey, but they keep bees for the pollination. And, and those keepers can be, I think, quite quite hardcore and I think sometimes at the detriment of the health of the hive or the knowledge building of the hive. But um, they basically tour their bees to big agricultural fields 
for, you know, really, really large-scale production for supermarkets, vegetables and fruits, things mm. like that, just to pollinate across the fields and then they move them on and it's sort of a paid gig. So they have a, just a truck and trucks and trucks full of bees. Um, so it's, there's kind of a, a really big scene uh, sort of in that world where the hives get stolen. Whoa, really? Yeah. yeah. This one for you. Had it. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's interesting. Um, I want to, we want to talk about some of your inspirations and, um, you mentioned you were involved in the punk scene a little bit. How, how did that shape, um, your work in the early days? Yeah, big time. I, you know, I never went to art school, so I think that was really the big education for me, kind of, I guess, half street smarts and half creativity, and I'm really grateful for it. Um, so it was kind of not long after I arrived in Australia, so I think it was a, the kind of the real moment where I sort of found community and friends and kindred spirits and my English was good, you know, so I think I could kind of really orienteer myself um, so I think for those listening in Melbourne, I yeah, I really grew up with the tote and the art house and the pony when it was the pony. And um, it's good. I mean, it's what anyone in punk rock will tell you, right? Like you learned how to screen print, you learned how to make flyers, you learned how to distribute stuff. It sounds very like Dickensian, you know, before the internet. <laughs> um, but it really taught me resourcefulness and, you know, especially graffiti, street art, how it goes, you know. Um, it really taught me how to kind of be quick, say what you want to say and keep evolving. And, you know, this, that's the really nice thing about subcultures, you know, like there's this real um, onus on momentum and everyone supporting each other in a best-case scenario. And, um, yeah, I think that was a really big one and I think I've always kind of come back to it as an adult when you're actually not living the philanthropy of your teenage years but you're an adult who has to pay rent and make decisions and work with people and reject, you know, great offers with money attached when you need it. And, you know, these kind of really difficult big life things of how you actually live as an adult. And I find myself, um, yeah, coming back to punk rock in all these really different and tangential ways. And, yeah, I feel so grateful for it. One thing that I found really um amusing and exciting about talking to spider about punk was just how little Mumwood knew about it and so he would ask the most beautifully naive questions and so i think we should ask you a couple of beautiful naive questions because i think that but you're you, the really punk rock one but when you, <laughs> when, you when you say that that word it just like the, it, there's so many connotations for so many people and um so much of it is 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 not like inspiring and it's not kind of um creatively affirming like there's there's such a huge side to that world that's um really just like uh, repetitive and dead so but but the culture continually like regenerates itself and emerges so give some examples like specifically of like the stuff that actually you found inspiring because i think that that's um I think that's important to kind of continue our friend's education <laughs> into yeah. this world. I thought you were punk rock as hell. Me? No. Why would you think that? I don't know. You, you kind of you walk in with the energy. I don't uh, know. No, I listen to rap. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Back yeah. when the genres were uh, 
you had to choose. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think the kids these days, I don't think No one in my um, neighbourhood was listening to punk. Yeah. Yeah, no one in my area. There was no ethnic punk kids. (laughs) Yeah, from my area anyway. Yeah, it just never never happened. But I I got kind of was interested in it um, early on after reading um, the work of Hanif Qureshi and he writes about um, being in London in the 70s and, like, there was one... Pakistani punk kid and just being like that's so fucking cool and he played in this band and he writes about it but yeah I, I never yeah I think it just seemed like a, a world outside of mine rap gangster rap made sense in the communities that I was living in yeah yeah um, yeah I think because I, I came to your work with the Muslims article and it was so great to see it in words you know and to see it recorded and this it was so refreshing, you know, and I think my boyfriend would just wouldn't stop talking about it as well. I think it resonated him with, with him so strongly. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I was listening to hip hop when I was a kid. I think especially all the punk kids, like there's so much Public Enemy, NWA, mm. things like that that really kind of crossed over to that energy and kind of political care. But um, I think to your question, I think the stuff that I was most excited about. Um, was the stuff that I saw myself in, you know, which for me was uh, so much about Pussy Riot, you know, obviously sticking at the Putin is um, part of my daily routine <laughs> um, and big part of my practice. Um, and Gogo Bordello and, you know, Eugene Hartz and being, you know, Romani, being Ukrainian mm. Romani was so incredible for me to see, you mm. know, and this incredible charismatic man, but also kind of singing in bilingual kind of phrasing and, you know, putting all this sort of Romani imagery out there was really mind-blowing to me. And, um, you know, I think I was saying before, uh, but crass as well, because I think there was so not straight-up punk rock, but um, married this sort of hippie idealism with being a crusty punk and politics, but also this sort of weirdly bohemian world. And I think they're kind of were the most kind of interesting to me. And I think I still really feel like that, like so interested in the world of poetry and emotions and then this kind of world of kind of serious politics and activism. And yeah, I come back to them more than anyone. It's very rare to kind of hear something that really does marry that, um, the kind of the the abstract um, use of language with, like, the real ferocity and, like, primal force of, like, that music where you have, like, um, it, they really, like, galvanised and brought together the, the such disparate areas of the world. And I was talking to Mahmoud about this. So the, there was, like, kind of this time where, like, like punk didn't necessarily mean, like, that you were, like, left-wing. There was a lot of, like, just kind of confused, angry football hooligans that were attracted to it purely for the violence. And Crass were one of the kind of bands that, like, really, like, drew a line in the sand and they were like, like no, like, you know, this this th- th- this is, like, um, not about kind of, like, um, like celebrating machismo or, like, um, f- fun, really. They weren't really that fun. It was incredibly serious and they were living in a commune and stuff like that. And I, it, I think, like, they're kind of the, a, a band that's, like, really difficult to imagine a teenager getting into. Like, but that's, like, when you get into it. Like, you know, can you talk about how you've heard it? Like, or where you heard yeah, it? Yeah, what was the first punk 
record or experience that you had? Oh, I mean, I think I kind of grew up a lot around um, prog rock, you know, Pink Floyd, stuff like that. Mm. I think there was sort of Clash records in the house, maybe. Um, so it wasn't, you know, so kind of, you know, something that really came and sort of threw a rock into my face. Mm. But, uh, you know, I think it's like with kids, right? You know, the right thing, right time, right place, and just something clicks and, you know the worst thing than being too late is being too early, you know, and there's just something about that synchronicity of when everything lines up and makes sense. Um, I don't know what the first one is for me. I think I'm... It's I find it really hard to remember. It, yeah, it seems yeah. almost like... I don't even remember how it happened, really. I'm not, I'm not, maybe, I'm not trying to conceal my historic... <laughs> but it Your obsession me. with rancid... <laughs> But it actually hit me so so hard, you know, and that like it's difficult to tell wh- where where it hit me or when, you know. Maybe it's it's the first artist you you're fanatical about, like for me and every other young Muslim I know, it was Tupac. Mm. But um, who was the first, maybe, yeah, artist? Doesn't have to be punk, whatever that that you were fanatical about, like you wanted all of their records and listen, to to hear everything. Oh, that's a good one. I mean, I, I love Tupac because he always seems so kind of punk rock and transgressive. Mm, was it, it the leather vest or something? <laughs> I mean, it was the tattoos, you know, real <laughs> real talk for me. You know? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's a really big love of tattooing and, um, you know, particularly more homemade and, you know, tattooing, which which he's so had and so iconically. Um and there's just something about those videos of, you know, 17-year-old Tupac when he's still in um, performance school and he's so feminine and so kind of gentle and beautiful and mm. kind of talking about how he wants to make his mum proud. And there was something about it. I was so into Tupac, I think, from those because yeah. he was so transgressive. I think he even studied ballet when he was... Yeah, yeah that's what yeah. those are from, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's amazing footage. He, he's so eloquent. Mm. and so calm um and then when you put that against my favorite footage of him which was when he's like spitting at the, at the press at, at the press and he's like footage, in, the, yeah. in this really like um but to think he would have been like 24 when yeah. that was happening like 25 maybe when maybe even younger man maybe like, around. Yeah, didn't he, he die when he's 23 oh, i don't 25? know I think, really? I think it's a bit older he was so young that, but he was really young. really young yeah yeah but then you know the guy that recorded hit him up a few years later, it, you know, it, it's so incredible the kind of creative force that he had. I always remember being and doing movies and yeah, 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 yeah. so good. So Tupac was was your first uh, fanatical love? No, no. I think um, I don't know. I think I kind of listened to music really widely. I loved oh, the was birthday there an actor party or anything. No, Nick Cave. I think was a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's funny because I've been going back. Every time I get stuck with artwork, I go back to um, Nick's lyrics when I need titles, oh. when I need to clear my head. It's like this palette cleanser. Um, so I think it's still a really, really big one for me. Um, no, I love television. I loved Richard Hell. That was my ultimate teenage crush. Absolutely <laughs> adored that man. I think he's still pretty, pretty... Do you listen to this? <laughs> <laughs> He's probably our number one listener yeah, to yeah. a podcast that hasn't been released yet. <laughs> I heard. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, that was, uh, I don't know, I was an avid reader. I was a strange kid, I think, you know, um, really academic, really into graffiti. What books strange were you reading? Kid. Oh, I, I loved the Russians and nice. the Ukrainians that the Russians claim. I love, you know, <laughs> Bulgakov, I loved Dostoevsky, I loved Tolstoy, I was reading a lot. Yeah, I was a really academic kid. I, I think I was a bit um, bored as well. I think Ukrainian school was quite hardcore. I think when I came to Australia, I was a little bit ahead in maths and things like that. So I think I kind of... Um, yeah, it was really academic, but it was also kind of acting out because I was a bit bored and, you know, kind of going off to gigs and painting graffiti and doing street art. And, um, uh, yeah, so I think I was kind of being a fan was a really, really important thing. Would you know, it, would being it? a fan of artists, being a fan of music, being a fan of writing. It was this real is that, is that continue? salvation. Has that continued for you? Oh, like, big time. Yeah. yeah, I think as much as I'm in my own world and in my own projects and um, kind of, you know, work with bigger teams and bigger deliverables. I have such a pleasure in just being a fan of being lost in someone else's world. Mm. What did what did Melbourne look like when you got here to you? You know what blew my mind? The plastic playgrounds blew my mind and that people had carpets that went to the edge of the room you know like uh the uh, carpets that you can't lift up and mm. wash with soapy water and beat with a broom that blew my mind i just i think that was the biggest thing but i i really remember melbourne um the city was so different you know uh so many warehouses so many abandoned spots you could go into I tried mm. I tried breaking into some the other day out west good luck man <laughs> It was so different the way we could go and, you know, be 14, 15 and just go play at like the Spencer Street Power Station and find rooms of asbestos or find rooms of disused stuff and paint whatever we wanted. And, yeah, really different. How important is like just being able to like walk around and get into spaces for you? Like and how much did the last few months kind of affect that? Because I would just go for walks for like hours just aimlessly like winding through streets just to be doing something but um i found it like such a strange time to be doing it uh, and and if you're like are out in the world like what what kind of experiences have you had like with with an empty city kind of at your doorstep i think i've loved it i have to say i i think i loved the clarity i loved the emptiness i i found it yeah, I found it really moving and kind of head-clearing and um, it sort of matched the time, you know. It wasn't – I mean, it's not my first time being in you know, situations where the politics are bigger than me. I don't think, it, you know, anything was a shock. I think, if anything, I felt so grateful to be here, you know, and I feel like as tough as, you know, being in the world's so far longest and hardest lockdown was, mm. I feel so grateful grateful to be here and I wouldn't have been anywhere else you know and I, I think I felt that through the whole time very strongly that's a fascinating thing that I don't think I've heard anyone say no no <laughs> <laughs> um how did, how were how you able to channel your fanatical nature or your fan kind of experiences like what, what were the things that really got you through like yeah, what, what you were you reading and and yeah particularly new things I'm curious about that um 
more than anything, I've been I've been writing a book, which is a new, which is new for me. I, I really like writing in my practice, uh, but you know, I never write more than five six thousand words. Um, it's been a while. I went. I got a degree in philosophy, so I was quite used to writing at a certain point, a lot. But it's sort of you know, hopefully it never goes. You just need to sharpen the skill. I, you know, you know about that. But um, so I've sort of actually been really in my own world of writing and everything else that I do. I can have you know six meetings a day. I can tell people to do this, to do that, to get back to me. I can start this, stop that. But with writing, man, I've just got to be in the zone, you know, mm. and you have to be in the world of it. So, so maybe it came a, at a great time. So. Are you writing a, a book? Yeah, I'm writing a have, book. Have you, do you set like a, a word limit on yourself or do you have a, a kind of routine that, that you... Yeah, for someone who hates routine, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, considering yeah, writing how, requires that, like, or how I, do you get I, around that? How do you negotiate that? Because I need this advice, for sure. <laughs> That's the same. <laughs> Help us, please. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my partner's a writer, so I notice yeah. you guys are really creatures of habit. Oh, we are? Uh, <laughs> yeah. News to me. Um, no, I, I think for me, I've, it's actually still been quite routineless. You know, some days it just doesn't happen. Some days you get distracted. You have to do other things. You have to reschedule your life three times over um, and negotiate all of that. And... Uh, but yeah, I think I've sort of I've sort of been a mix of uh, it's a book about sort of histories of women tattooing other women, you know, wow. in, in all the ways that kind of means something through time and place, um, you know. And I think a lot of the times you see tattoo books, they're sort of in the section with you know motorcycles and surfing and like cool tough guys stuff, which which is great and it, it's really important. But you know, such a big part of the history of tattooing is women tattooing other women mm, and it's sure. really tied to childbirth and you know interiors and ceramics and textiles and you know uh, beauty and religion and all these other things so it's kind of the phd i probably never write that i wanted to write and wow yeah so it's kind of been a little bit irregular in that you know sometimes it's research sometimes it's really furious writing sometimes it's images sometimes it's interviewing someone or, mm. you know um you so must it's been quite seen, eclectic, yeah. You must have seen a lot of the beautiful Berber tattoos when you were in Morocco. Yeah, the Mazigian yeah. women, yeah, they're so beautiful. Um, and so, yeah, and, and Bosnia as well. That was sort right. of my big project in Bosnia last year was um, recording tattoos because it is sort of um, a dwindling custom, unfortunately, and sort of the last women that have it are quite old and... Um, it's a sort of small kind of acts of revival and, you know, reclamation. But I think mm. hopefully yeah. there's more to come. But, yeah, it's been incredible work. Yeah, in Afghanistan it's definitely fizzling out with the Korchi tribes. You know, mm. a lot of the Korchan and their women would have really beautiful tattoos. Um, but, yeah, I think post-Taliban era, yeah, the way the country's become more radicalised, it's really dissolved I'd love to read that yeah yeah it's interesting you know there's uh, you, Morocco and Bosnia as well there's sort of a really interesting um point where you know interpretations of Islam come in or more kind of physical copies of the Quranic texts that um, suddenly people realize it's sort of looked down upon and before it was 
kind of really integrated into spiritual belief and, you know, mm. part pagan, part Islamic, um, has kind of been a really big part of uh, kind of, I guess, disintegrating the customs, um, even though it was, yeah, such a strong part of kind of spiritual worship. It's, yeah. How has this work... Um it w- or has it reframed the way you view tattooing? Because you've been a pretty prolific tattoo artist and it's been yeah, documented widely and you've got a lot of critical acclaim for it. But w- how has it made you think about, or has it made you think about tattooing in a new light, this project? I think all of these things I, were the reason that I was really drawn to tattooing in the first place, you know, and part punk and part, you know, giving your friends tattoos with sewing needles, which I've definitely done, and it's awesome. Um, but I think I've always loved things that are uh, kind of really part of the decorative history or the history that gets kind of written off as being, you know, um, craft or, you know, whatever you want to put under that umbrella. And so I think that whole kind of history and that whole attitude of, um, yeah, women tattooing other women was always kind of the biggest call for me in, in even starting to tattoo. So I think this is kind of an amalgamation of 10 years of kind of travel and tattooing practice and tattooing pretty widely and um, kind of different ways of looking at it. It's been cool to do in lockdown because I'm obviously not tattooing anybody or touching anybody. So it's kind of interesting to think about bodies and human connection and touch and sweat and all this kind of stuff when you're totally deprived of it. So it's actually been quite a cool space to, to write the book in. Is it a fairly uh, like international or universal practice like, or is it um, kind of def- like defined towards certain areas like as far as you can tell from your research? No, I mean, I think the idea of women tattooing other women has sort of touched every continent and time and place. Um, there's so much about teaching children about pain, you know, and young adults about pain, and it's wow. why it's such a prerequisite for marriage, you know, pretty much in everywhere that tattoos. It's something you do as a teenager at first, you know, and then there are all these really interesting studies um, when they've put teenagers into CT scans and MRIs before they get their big tattoos and after, and they find that their grey matter actually changes. Um, so it's this really big rite of passage thing, and especially for, you know, girls and women to teach about the pain of childbirth, you know, is to kind of enact prolonged pain for um, long amounts of time. And, you know, it's why so many places they say the girls with the biggest tattoos are going to be the best wives and the best mothers because they can... Endurance. Yeah, yeah. It's really teaching about endurance and, um, you know, getting through what you think you might not be able to get through. Hmm. Did you interview women who are like the tattooists, tattoo artists of their area in Morocco or...? Yeah, I mean, it's a fading custom. So uh, in Morocco, whenever I've chatted with women, it's women who have the marks, but I've never met anyone who's given them. Wow. And it's uh it's strange and same in Bosnia it's um it's so taboo now. You know, I'm sure you find it in Afghanistan as well. It's like you actually have to talk of at least for about 10 minutes before you mention them and you say, "Oh, you know, by the way, and you know, obviously I have tattoos and you can see them." 
on my hands, you know, whatever else I'm wearing. But, um, yeah, it's it's funny. Like women will often like recoil a little bit and you sort of have to pick up the conversation again mm-hmm. um, very gently and very kind of tactically. Um, but because there's, there, there is such a taboo around it now in most places. Um, and then it's funny. I think you kind of have these really great conversations and sometimes... It's nice because you you know that's that conversation hasn't been had before. If someone appreciating them and knowing about them, taking an interest, and you, you can kind of really see it in in people's faces. I think. What, yeah. what what did they talk to you about? Like, what were they saying about their tattoos or their practices? And I mean, every every place is different. I mean, I I'm like a um, chronic like you know, touch of like asking people about their textiles or their jewels or their tattoos mm-hmm. or their, you know, whatever it is. I'm um, kind of very, I think, very curious and hopefully very good at it by now and, you know, very respectful. But, um, yeah, it's funny even, in, you know, in, for example, I, I spoke to a woman in Bosnia um, who was saying she had so much shame because all the all her tattoos, uh, traditionally they date from... Um, the cult of Mithras, so they're kind of the oldest swastikas that are kind of known through Europe and they're about sun worship and the worship of the Roman god Mithras who was a, a kind of creature of the sun and um, they sort of became Catholic in the way they were applied but they're, they never became like, you know, sacred hearts or long crosses, they always stayed equilateral. It's quite interesting. Um, and so I remember really speaking to the woman and she was saying, I feel really ashamed of these. You know, my mother did them on me when I was, you know, I think like 10 years old and, you know, I didn't really have a choice and now I I work in Vienna a lot. I work in Austria and people think they're swastikas in the, you know, fascistic sense and so she's kind of had all this sort of shame around hiding them and I think for her it was, yeah, really quite cool to speak to someone who kind of understood what they were and... um, was really enthusiastic about them. and Yeah, it was really beautiful. When you were having these conversations, had you already kind of conceptualised working on this project or was this just something that you'd been kind of the, the curiosity? Yeah, I think I'm just curious and a bit of a magpie, yeah. So I think this book is more just like a, a really nice organic kind of, um, I don't know, maybe like a full stop to 10 years of tattooing, yeah. So what else have you got in the works um, these days? Uh, I'm working on some sculptures that are sort of around the idea of migration and uh, bureaucracy as violence. Um, so the idea of paperwork as kind of knowing obstacles of, you know, prevention of human wow. rights and uh, the idea of sort of weaponization of language and forms of communication and, you know, bureaucratic lineages. Um, a kind of really expressed form of violence. Um, uh, so it's kind of a body of work that's speaking to the idea of um, Homer and the Odyssey as uh, a sort of the idea of the first great migrant, you know, quote-unquote mm-hmm. novel, um, which pitches lines from the Odyssey in exact matching to uh, lines from redacted migration documents. And these sort of documents of um, 
of violence. I, I guess that really comes from, yeah, the, like, as a migrant, kind of pretty permanent migrant, um, the politics of that. Um, so that's kind of a big series of sculptures. And then I'm making a film in Ukraine and Bosnia that's for Acme, um, which is still a little while away, but it's sort of about hairdressers and grave makers as sort of sites of resistance in kind of war zones and post-war zones. And the sort of idea about, um, I guess, kind of European national identity. You know, I think what struck me being a Ukrainian is we always thought we were Europeans, you know, or we had the line where Europe meets Asia. And that's how, you know, a really big chunk of the earth is talked about and, you know, with Ukrainians going back to Herodotus who saw, you know, the river that divides Ukraine as the line but where east and west mm. kind of met. But, you know, then they say it about Kazakhstan, they say it about Turkey, mm. you know, they say it about Bosnia, they say it about every country in a very, very wide block of the world. Um, but it made me think a lot about, you know, which countries are European and which ones are not, you know, and for a continent um, who after World War Two, said never again, you know, never a genocide again, never, never again, um, it has happened again, you know, and I think there was this real value judgment with both Bosnia and Ukraine, you know, obviously two countries of, that are now home for me, um, is it was something that was kind of accepted and kind of not helped in a really big way to two countries who always found themselves European. So I think it's about the kind of those parallels in Ukraine and Bosnia is, you know, these sort of kind of twin countries in their conflict 30 years apart and sort of it's sort of about the prime of the conflict and the after effects of the conflict three decades later and what that looks like pitted against each other, told through grave makers and hairdressers like the sites of resistance where you keep life going and document and resist and do your hair and do these things that are vain but are actually really important and you know where all the aunties go to talk and yeah so it's kind of recording that and then um why, why is else? that what why, else am why, i doing <laughs> why is that you're doing a lot why why, 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 why is that why is that important to you to make things and to do this work? Like, because um, you you must stay, you have to stay inspired to juggle all the things you're doing and to do this amount of work. Um, yeah, what what keeps you going and why do you think you know you you need to do this because you do need to do this. Um, but what inside your head, why do you think you need to do this? and make things and present them to people? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think kind of everything I've spoken about is probably a really healthy mix of anxiety and anger and poetry and frustration and curiosity. Um, you know, I think we've got one life in this world and I think to be an artist is as difficult and precarious as it is, is the biggest privilege you'll ever get. You know, and I think to make something with your hands or your voice or um, your feeling is about as good as it gets, you know. And to show people what you see is pretty, it's a pretty fundamental human thing, isn't it? 
I think um, it's very rare to um, meet someone or to hear someone speak as eloquently about art as you do. And I feel really privileged for this experience. But I also think it would be like quite nice to, to hear if you had like kind of advice for a young artist or someone who's like kind of um, uh, just really discovering the, the kind of anxiety and anger and curiosity that like is driving them somewhere, but maybe... Um, and is faced with the hopelessness. Yeah, or just, yeah, even just... Um, the that overwhelming feeling of needing to create but don't, not even knowing where to start like like you know um do you, do you, is there anything you could say to someone in that position because i'm sure you would have heard something like that from someone else in your lifetime that was like gave, gave you that kind of clarity and i can think of moments like that for me where someone said something that quite simply um made it important that it was uh, writing a song at that moment that i had mm. to do that you know or writing a poem or like um uh, even something like like organising an event or something like that. Can you think of something like that? Like, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, <laughs> but would there be some, something like that, that that you could pass on to mm. to the youth? To the youth? <laughs> um, I mean, it's a funny thing about creativity. There's no one way to do it, right? Um, I think it's kind of more about making your work your best friend, making what you need to make and surrounding yourself by the right people who inspire you or feed you or in a really good way are kind of competitive, you know, in a, in a really healthy and um, kind of loving way that make you want to better yourself or, you know, give you an education if you don't have one, you know, through a more formal means of art school or university or whatever it is. Um, but, you know, I think I've been sort of surprised. I absolutely slogged it through my 20s and sometimes it felt really really thankless and I don't feel like much has changed in my 30s but I think at a certain point people just recognize that you're going to stick around you know and in your 20s yeah everyone makes art everyone makes music everyone's in a band everyone DJs you know um there's such a kind of plethora of creativity but I think when people see that you're dedicated and you've stuck with it, I, th I think something changes when people know you're in it for the long term. I've been really surprised by that because I, I don't think, in essence, my work has changed so much, but now things are coming for past works that felt kind of thankless, but they've been around for a few years and now things are kind of coming back and people are understanding them. And, you know, curators said stuff kind of a little bit beside the point at the time of, you know, why don't you make things about Australian migrant identity? You know, why don't you talk about these things? Are kind of now understanding the work you made about your home, not about your identity. You know, think small things like that. But, um, you know, with time, it really changes. I, I sort of wish someone told me that. I think I would have had a lot less stickers. Litmus Media.